Good morning, church. Happy Lord's Day to all of you. I am so I am so thankful that uh, it is the Lord's Day. You know, uh, I'm I just look forward to every Sunday where I can just spend time with you guys. And uh, when the worship service is done, I look forward to to greeting you too uh, on the way out. Uh, you know, because sometimes it's the only time I get to see you all week. So it's it's uh, really good to be able to spend time with you. If you are visiting with us, um, glad that you're here. And please uh, visit us again uh, when the opportunity comes your way. Please come and uh, enjoy this time of worship to God. We are continuing our worship series um, on trying to be more Christ-like. In a way, we are looking at the character of Jesus. We're looking, we're almost like a character study. And as we look at what Jesus was like and what he did, then we are to try to be like him. So we use him as our model. So as Christ, so we. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9. And our brother Ricky is going to come up and read Luke 9. Verses 23 through 26. Luke 9, 23 through 26. Luke 9, 23 to 26. This section is entitled, Take up your cross and follow Jesus. And he said to all, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life will lose it. For whosoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Amen. Thank you for that reading. The um, emphasis that I want to give today's lesson really comes from verse 23. Uh, There's so much in the text, but 23 does have a lot that I want to cover this morning. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, what is he to do? Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So the title of today's lesson is, As Christ Took Up His Cross. So we also need to take up our cross. Because that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus took up his cross. And I want to ask the question, do we like to get something for nothing? (laughs) Uh, That usually is something that um, we see a lot of. Many people want to get stuff. You know, many people want the nice house. They want the nice vehicle. They they want uh, a very large sum of money ready for their retirement. Maybe they want a summer home uh, up, up in the cottage, northern Ontario, by a lake where they can spend uh, July and August fishing and just enjoying uh, cottage life. People want stuff, but sometimes we like to cheat a little bit in order to get it, rather than spending time and making sure that you get a good education, studying hard, get your degree or multiple degrees, and then get that good job and work hard at it. People want to do something different. So they may want 
wealth, as we've been talking about, but rather than work hard for that money, they would rather gamble, they would rather play the lottery. Maybe we can cheat the system. We can get something for no effort. Another example of something for nothing is maybe they want the benefit of an intimate, live-in relationship. They want that. They want all the blessing that comes from that. But they don't want a marriage. And why don't they want a marriage? Well, we understand if you read Scripture, you know what marriage is. It's a commitment. And so because marriage is a commitment, they they don't want that. So if you have a live-in situation... If the going gets tough, isn't it easy just to pack up and leave? It's easy. The going gets really difficult, and you're not having a good time, and say, okay, I'm out. But as we know from reading Scripture, marriage comes with a price. It comes with a price. It's no longer about me, but we. The Scripture tells us that when we're married, God makes us, who are two fleshes, now we become one flesh. And so we need to act as one. We are now we. And we are concerned about now my partner. It's not just about me. Also, it is a partnership. And because during the marriage ceremony, there are words spoken which show we're committed to that relationship. We make a commitment to that partnership. So due to that commitment, it means having no one else. You might remember, for those of you who are married, you might remember saying that I will forsake anyone else and cleave only to my partner. That's the one I'm going to cling to. Forsaking all others, save her or him, depending on the situation. And you may have said, till death do us part. That's God's design, right? God's design for marriage is it's for life. And because it's for life, really, that is the one factor that really is to bring the, the marriage to an end. That's God's design. If God had his way, the only end of marriage would be death. Now, in the New Testament, there is one provision that allows for a separation, and that's fornication. But God would absolutely prefer that the only separation that takes place is when the person dies. That it is truly death do us part. So marriage comes with a price. And so, well, what about true religion? Well, it's similar. You know, some do want religion. And very often, those who do want religion, maybe they want it because they've been undergoing some suffering. Something happens in their life, they lose a loved one, or they're just in in a suffering state. And as a result, they are seeking God at that time. But the problem is, if that's your motivation just to get some comfort, how long does that last? Not very long, because they don't want the commitment. They may want to feel the love of God for a time where they get the comfort. But then when they're comforted, they don't have the love for God that they need to have. And then they're they're gone. We cannot, with religion, simply give it a try when it comes to serving, when it comes to being a Christian. People who give it a try will bail when it gets hard. True? It's true. They'll bail. You know what? As I put this together, I couldn't help but my mind go to um, 
uh, a movie that I liked very much as a child. You know, I grew up as a, ch- uh, as a child, I grew up as a Star Wars fan. You know, not so much these days. I haven't really enjoyed the movies as much as in my youth. But the Empire Strikes Back. And Luke is on the planet Dagobah with Yoda. And then his ship is in the, in the swamp and it's sinking. And then he's, oh, we'll never get it out now. And then Yoda looks at him and says, so certain are you? And so then they have this, this conversation, and then Luke doesn't believe that he can use the force to, to bring that ship up out of the water. And then he says, okay, I'll give it a try. Mm. If we just try Christianity, we're just going to bail when things get tough. And then when he says, I'll give it a try, do you remember what Yoda said? He says, no, try not, do or do not. There is no try. So the thing, and that is that is a very strong statement, because rather than trying, Yoda tells him, "Do it. You need to be committed to it. Be committed to what you're going to do. Don't just try. So you need to do it. Be have that commitment. You know what? We all love a savior, don't we? When we're in trouble, we want someone to save us." Whether it's spiritually, physically, if we're drowning, we want someone to reach out that hand to rescue us. We love a Savior. But what's troublesome is wanting a Lord, desiring to have a Lord. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. What does Lord mean? It means having an authority over you, master, someone you'll listen to and abide by. He's King. You know, our confession of faith is so important at conversion. You know, I know that when we talk about um, being converted to Christ, usually we emphasize baptism, right? And there's good reason for that. It's because the religious world at large, they don't see baptism as all that necessary. They don't believe it's for forgiveness of sins and so forth. So we very much emphasize it. And of course we should. And we also emphasize repentance a lot of the time. Sometimes what we don't talk about too much, though, is confession what we're acknowledging before we're baptized. And confession of faith is very important. Uh, I don't have this on the slide, but in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, we get a confession from the apostle Peter. Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Jesus reply, or Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The word Christ means anointed one. It means Messiah, which is our deliverer, our savior. He was confessing Jesus as a savior. You're our deliverer. You're going to rescue us. You're the Messiah. And that's part of the confession, the saving part. But you know what? There's another part of of confession that we sometimes forget. You know what that is? The lordship. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the apostle Paul says... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's part of our confession too. We confess both Jesus being our Savior and also our Lord. And I believe that's very important, and it's not only because it's scriptural, but because as we're coming to Christ, we're, we're not only coming to him because we want to be saved, although that's part of it. We want to be saved, but we also come to Christ with the recognition at this point now, when I, when I 
go into that water and come up as a brand new creature, I'm going to belong to him. And he's going to be my Lord. Which means the things that he said in this book, in the New Testament, this is going to be my guide. When I become a Christian, Jesus is not only saving me, but he's also going to be the authority over my life and I am going to look to what he left behind for me to live by. I'm going to live by this. And so that's why it's important in confession. That's why whenever I do a baptism, I make sure that when we come to the confession part, I mention, will you acknowledge Jesus not only as your Savior, but also as your Lord? So that the person recognizes, yes, not only Savior, but also Lord. Jesus will be my authority. And so that's what we acknowledge prior to baptism. I, I ran across this quote on Facebook, and I actually I reworded it slightly just so that it goes off my tongue a little easier. Um, the quote goes something like this. Too many are willing to sit at God's table, but are not willing to work at his field. And isn't it true that, I mean, we all love a good meal, don't we? You know, to go and sit at, at someone's table and uh, they're... They, they give you wonderful offerings, a delicious meal. We are willing to sit at the Lord God's table and enjoy the blessing of the meal that he has provided. But then, when the meal is over, we don't want to go into his field where he wants us to, to work for him. We, we might be tempted rather to say, you know what, I enjoyed the, the meal and I'm going to go have a nap. But that's not what God wants. He wants us to be willing to work in his field. Again, people want to get something for nothing. So our focus text is Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And again, just reading what this text says. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And notice the scripture says, said to all, if anyone. That's for everyone. This invitation, this instruction is for everyone. Jesus is essentially saying that it is what it is going to cost. This is what it's going to cost you to follow me. Know what you're getting into beforehand. You need to know what the cost is. And there's two things he highlights. Number one, self-denial. Deny yourself. This is an essential component for our coming to the Savior. Just look for, uh, with me for a moment. Romans chapter 6. And I want to read verses 6 and 7. Romans 6 verses 6 and 7. Notice what the Apostle Paul says here. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Are we understanding what Paul is saying? We've sacrificed the flesh. We've sacrificed our desire to sin. We, basically, this is part of repentance, is that we're choosing God over choosing ourselves. So, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So we die to self. We repent, choosing God. We reject ourselves. We reject the, the pull of the flesh. 
And self-denial also goes beyond self-control. With self-control, you're just controlling yourself over something that's there, something that exists. You have it under control. Self-denial is different because you are truly denying it. You're treating it as something that is non-existent. The, the, The best example I can think of for this is an atheist. An atheist, they deny the existence of God. They treat God as non-existent. And so that's the whole idea of denial. So we need to self-deny. Now, of course, what he's talking about is selfishness. We can still take care of ourselves, but we deny ourselves selfishness. And so to deny means to ignore, turn our back on it. We shut the door on it. True self-denial is not shutting the door just for a moment here and there. And I give the example of, well, I'm going to make a decision to self-deny on Sunday. God, you can have my Sundays. But on Monday, when I go back to work, um, you know, I, I take over at that point. You know, that's my time. For God, no, we need to self-deny all the time. It, it's true self-denial. And you know what? Uh, I can't help but think about this example. I'm thinking of Deb's dad um, uh, with regard to the whole idea of of truly being a real Christian. You know, he, he had a business, uh, a herbal business, where he operated out of his house. He had a, an, a little waiting room in the basement, and his office was there. And so he was, he didn't just turn off his Christianity when it was time to go to work. Yes, he was a herbalist, and that was a, a job to make money. But what, even though he was down there and he was serving those people with physical things, when they were in the waiting room, there in the shelving area, he had Bibles, he had commentaries, hymn books. On the table where they would sit, he had... Um, the brochure we made for the North Hamilton Church of Christ, he had a pile of them and tracks and stuff like that. And the, the, the fact of the matter is, people who went to see him to have their physical needs looked after, he was also trying to address their spiritual need. And so he would have religious conversation with them. His Christianity was real. It was not just on Sundays, but it was the whole week. And so the people who saw him knew who he was. He was a Christian. And they would talk about it. So no, this is God can only have my Sundays. God has my Monday through Sunday. True self-denial is yielding our whole life, living to please God, not ourselves. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. What does Paul say there? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But Christ lives in me. So Christ is living in me, but I have crucified myself. And allowing, I'm allowing Christ and his life to really fill me up. And Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. I actually want you to turn with me there. I want you to actually see the words. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Notice what the Apostle Paul writes here. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing 
Christ Jesus my Lord. He's making a comparison. Everything is lost. Why? Because the worth of Jesus, there's, it cannot be surpassed. Christ's worth is way up here, and everything else can just be considered loss. And then he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And notice his attitude toward the things that he lost. He's not, he's not worried about the things that he lost. He's not wishing that he had them again. He says, he counts them as rubbish. What is rubbish? Refuse, garbage. It's what you throw out to the curb. You get rid of it. You don't want it anymore. He counts it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He counts everything as loss. True self-denial is yielding our whole life. Not to ourselves. Self gives way altogether to Christ as the motive for life. You know, I think I might want to pause here for just a moment and just address maybe parents in the room at this point. I really feel that we really need to try to instill in our kids this truth. And that is Christ needs to be the motive for life. And as kids grow up small, we tend to maybe allow them to spend too much time with entertainment and ways that they can just sort of occupy themselves, for lack of a better phrase. What we should be doing as parents in the church is really, really striving to instill with them then at a, at a young age the importance of spiritual things that Christ needs to be the motive for their life. And to do that, they need Bible at home. You know what? If, if the Sundays is the only Bible nourishment they get throughout the week, it's not enough. What happens here should only be supplementary to what they're getting at home so that they can truly appreciate that Christ should be the motive for their life. Remember what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1? That we are to remember the Lord in the days of our youth. Knowing the Lord early. The earlier the better. Start them early. Very important. So I just wanted that as an aside to this point. Let's get our kids to really appreciate Christ as the motive for life as early as possible. Number two in the text is taking up the cross. First, how would this have been understood in the first century, taking up the cross? Well, first of all, it's the first mention of the cross in Luke's gospel. And very likely, Jesus' hearers, this might be the first time they've heard him even mention it, and they may have been surprised that he mentioned it. Why are you talking about the cross of all things? The, the hearers would understand this, and according to Josephus, the hearers there, the Jewish people, very likely would have seen hundreds of rebels crucified in Palestine during that time. And it was a horrible thing. And those images of crucified people, um, it was a torturous thing. And as a result... Jesus now saying, take up your cross. What do you mean by that? And then that's the Jewish perspective. What about the Roman perspective? Well, according to Cicero, uh, 63 BC, 
it's interesting that he makes comment that the Roman citizens should know nothing about it. They shouldn't see it. They shouldn't hear it. They shouldn't even think it. Notice this uh, quote from Cicero. He says, Even if death be threatened, we may die free men, but the, ex the executioner and the veiling of the head, now notice here, and the mere name of the cross should be far removed, not only from the persons of Roman citizens, and how removed, he says, from their thoughts and eyes and ears. For not only the actual fact and endurance of all these things, but the bare possibility of being exposed to them. The expectation, the mere mention of them even, is unworthy of a Roman citizen and of a free man. What he's saying is Roman citizens should not even be aware of crucifixion. They shouldn't see it. They shouldn't hear it. They shouldn't think it. Actually, this quote kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, uh, what was going on in World War II um, with, uh, with the Germans. You've heard of the, um, uh, what the Germans were doing to the, to the Jewish people. And um, they were executing them, mass murdering them. And the Nazis were keeping German citizens in the dark about the whole thing. They didn't want the citizens to know about it. And with good reason that they didn't want them to know about it. And they even used code words to keep it secret. And so here Cicero's saying, no, Roman citizens shouldn't know about this stuff. Crucifixion was a cruel torture instrument which was reserved for the worst sort of criminals. And of course the Jews were accustomed to seeing it. So Jesus' use of cross imagery must have been somewhat alarming to his hearers. They were not aware that the cross for Jesus was in his future. They had no idea that's where he was headed. And the imagery really represents Christ's own submission to his will, to his Father's will that would take him to Calvary. So here's, when he says take up the cross, what does it mean? It means Jesus' submission to his Father's will. Living his Father's will, which for Jesus was going to the cross. So the act of taking up the cross, that means we initiate the action. No one's picking it up for us, but rather we take it up. We choose to take it up. It's our choice. The decision indicates our commitment to be faithful to God's will. We choose to live for God. That's what taking up the cross is. We are choosing to live for God. We are choosing to live by, by his law, his precepts. And we are faithful to death. That's what Revelation 2.10 says. Be faithful unto death and you will receive the crown of life. Jesus' hearers may have understood his basic message. And what that basic message is, is one needs to be willing to die to follow him. That's probably what they got out of it. Because crucifixion is death. And here's the teaching. No cross, no crown. If you want a crown, bear the cross. And it's persistent. Because Luke uses the word daily. We need to daily take up the cross. The idea of daily cross bearing is not simply about enduring it. But I want us to understand, too, it's also accepting those hardships. Because if something is daily, 
doesn't mean that it's normal, right? A lot of people start their day with a morning cup of coffee. And since we're in Canada, we'll say Tim Hortons coffee. You start your day with a cup of Tim Hortons. That's a daily thing. It's normal. And so the idea of the hardships that come with just following God, that should be normal. We shouldn't act as if something strange is happening to us. That's what the Apostle Peter said. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Don't act like something strange is happening to you because of the hardships. So we should be accepting of it. We should, because we're expecting it. It's daily we're, we're lifting up our cross. Matthew 10, 38, Jesus said, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And the context is that Jesus is teaching, love God more than our own families. That's the context, is that we need to put God in front of mother, father, brother, sister. God is more important. And so we need to put him first. If we don't, we're not worthy of him. And in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you have fellowship with your master. His disciples were always with him, with the exception of when he sent them out on missions. But other than that, if he didn't send them out on missions, they were with them. Disciples with the master. And so if we're not going to bear our cross, we can't be his disciple, we can't be with him. To be a true disciple is to be in fellowship with the master daily, living the abundant life he has given now let's talk about divine support because we're talking about bearing this cross and we wonder, this might be too burdensome for me. It seems like a lot to ask, but we're not alone. I love Psalm 68, verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Do you see that? We're called to bear our cross but God is there to bear us up. He is our helper. We're not doing this alone. He gives us the strength. And in Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. We pursue righteousness. God will be there to help us. And you know what? God has given us something more, too, under the new covenant. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, this is why it's so important that we build relationships here in the church. We need to. That's actually part of the motivation to start that men's breakfast. Because you know what? And I, I have to say this. The ladies really are doing an excellent job here. They are building their relationship so that if, if they're struggling with something, they have someone that they can confide in to go to, to, to strengthen them, to help them. The guys, we need to do a little bit of a better job, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, but that's why we came up with the men's breakfast, so that we can come together. And it's great to study the Bible together, yes, but you know what? Part of the motivation for starting that up really was so that we could spend time together. You know, and 
eat breakfast together, talk with one another, build those relationships, it would be wonderful if everyone in the church here, we had at least one, two, three, hopefully more, but at least a small handful of brethren that we can confide in. And if we're struggling, we can go to that person for the strength that we need. That, that's the blessing of the church. So we have divine support from God. He will help us. His church will help us. He will give us the support we need to continue our faithful service. And I must say, it's worth the price. Luke 9.25, which is part of the, uh, our scripture reading. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So what's being compared to is you can have everything in the world or your soul. The NIV, I believe, says forfeits your soul. The lesson here is gaining the whole world is not worth it. The value of your soul is more. It's worth more than anything, everything in this world. And in Romans 8.18, the Apostle Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, notice what he says, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You cannot compare them. Whatever we're dealing with here, whatever suffering we're dealing with here, it cannot compare with, with what's coming. And you know what? Paul even talked about this person who was caught up to the third heaven. Uh, most, most people believe that the person he was speaking about was himself. And that he got, he got, to, to, see, he got to have this glimpse of the glory that is awaiting. And then who better qualify? If that's true, if that was the Apostle Paul, who better to tell us that it's not worth comparing to him? if he's the one who saw that glory. So yes, he would be absolutely qualified to say, hey, it's not worth comparing. What I saw, oh, it far exceeds anything here. I'm willing to suffer to experience that glory. So the suffering associated then with self-denial and the unwavering commitment to the will of God, which is bearing our cross, is worth for what's coming. It's worth it. And remember the price Christ was willing to pay for us. And we actually met around the table and we remembered the price that, that was paid for our sin. He picked up his literal cross and marched toward his death. He picked up the instrument of his death and he carried it. He did have help, but he did carry it. And so we were worth the price. And so like Christ then, so we also. We need to see the glory is worth it. Loving God is worth it. So in conclusion, Jesus took up his cross. He was bearing that cross even before he took up the literal physical cross because he says daily. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus took up his own spiritual cross daily. He lived a life of self-denial. Jesus lived a life in submission to his Father's will, and he asks us to do the same. And the following statement by Paul really captures, I think, the essence of Luke 9.23. And we read it already. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm no longer living. 
Who's living now? It's Christ living in me. So what we're talking about here is full surrender. That right there is full surrender. Self-denial and submission. Jesus was sitting on the throne of Paul's heart. So remember this. No cross, no crown. And I'm reminded of a hymn that we sometimes sing with regard to this idea of full surrender. All to Jesus I surrender. You know, this, this is a hymn. We all sing it. But do we really understand what we're saying when we sing it? Because we're saying something with our mouth that I hope is in harmony with our heart. And just notice what the words are. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence, ah, daily. Luke 9.23. In his presence, daily live. Verse 2. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Now, Now we get to denial again. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Self-denial. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. The whole idea of take me. Basically, we want to be in his presence. Lord, take me. Let me be with you. Verse 3. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. And then the chorus. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. When we sing that, do we really mean every word of it? I pray that we do. That we will surrender everything to the Lord. Remember the, uh, the rich young ruler. Jesus saw that there was something that he had in his heart that he loved more than God. And Jesus told him, you need to get rid of that and then come follow me. He couldn't do it. He couldn't get rid of his riches because that was more important to him. That was a stumbling block to his service. He loved it. He loved it more than he loved God. So he could not surrender all. May may that not be said of us we need to surrender everything to the Lord. And I pray that as we close, we will take seriously our taking up our cross and that we recognize that God loves us. We need to love him. We need to love one another and help each other bear that burden because I want everyone in this room and downstairs, the folks that I can't see down there, hi everyone, um, those that I can't see down there, I, I want you all to be saved. I want, I want everyone here to get to heaven. I want to be with you. I want to be around the throne of God, praising the Lord God with you. So let's do that. Let's get there together. Love one another. Love the Lord. If you are not part of the family, please be a part of the family of God. Jesus is calling He wants you to be saved. But more than that, He wants you to come to Him. He wants to be your master and allow you to enjoy the full life that He offers. But living in submission to Him. His life is the good life, even though there's hardship. 
his life is still the good life. It's the best life. Because nothing can happen. Nothing will shake you. It doesn't matter what's going on in this world. It won't shake you. Because you'll have a peace and a joy that the world can't take from you. So please come and be a part of the kingdom of God. That you need to come and repent of your sin, confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, and be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, be part of His kingdom, the church, and live faithfully, obediently to Him for the rest of your days until death, and you will receive the crown of life. If you're subject to this invitation today, won't you come now while together we stand and we sing?